0: Listening to Pleading the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be yours. (music) Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Adam and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame. This is part 5, and the last episode in the series that I have been doing on the church as last Eve, proving Jesus came to redeem a bride. And uh, the, the proof that I have been presenting over... The previous four episodes uh, has been to draw a correlation between the description of the creation of Eve, the first Eve through the first Adam that's recorded in Genesis chapter two verses twenty one through twenty five um, to correlate these verses, this description of the creation of Eve with Jesus in the accounts in the New Testament uh, for Him coming to offer up His life. And we, or Christians, as Christians, we believe that um, He offered up His life uh, in order to redeem a church, but, but the church is a bride. And the question is, is that just all figurative, symbolic language, uh, or is that uh, much more of the reality in the same way that God created Eve, uh, that Adam called her woman initially, uh, through Adam, that the church is a bride. And there is, just looking at one of these verses, uh, there is, I think, more than enough proof uh, for proving this fact that, that the church is essentially the last Eve, or at least like the last Eve. And we know that that Jesus is the last Adam. He's the second, last, and final Adam. And Jesus is not only Savior, uh, but he's also husband and bridegroom. And looking at this, this last passage describing the creation of Eve through Adam, It's very uh, telling uh, when it says, Adam and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. Um, Why is this significant? Well, if we think about it, Adam and Eve, their entire being, uh, word, deed, and action, is all consumed, by their relationship with God. There is no thought of self, and everything is about worship. Their, their entire lives, their entire being, uh, beings is in worship of God. And, and we know from the previous verse that um, in marriage, uh, beginning with Adam and Eve, that the two are considered to be one flesh. And so that's, even though there are two individuals in the garden, uh, they are considered by God in their relationship to Him, uh, being married, being joined together as, as one. And as one, they are really essentially in a marriage relationship with God as well. So, you know, we know they have no thought of self. Because it says they were naked, and they didn't even know they were naked. They didn't even realize they were naked. Uh, There there was nothing in in that setting, that sin-free setting, with them being sinless that would cause them to have self-awareness, to see themselves, other than in the way that God saw them that they were fully accepted by God just the way they were. There was no insecurity, there was no doubt, uh, there was no um, you know, we've got to change our outward appearance, do our hair differently, uh, dress differently, you know, it it none of that. No peer pressure, uh, no social standing, uh, just Realizing they were fully accepted by God as they were, uh, but with one condition the condition that was um, stated by God to Adam that everything in the garden uh, they were were free to to eat the fruit of except uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and when the serpent comes in and tempts Eve. And I want to read this account to you. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. That's just so remarkable. I have a little commentary that he immediately throws her under the bus. He does not want to take any responsibility for his actions. He's, my goodness, right there, that's the precedent for blame shifting. Uh, he, he's innocent in his eyes. It, she, she made him do it, right? The devil made me do it. Uh, then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. You know, you can't put all the blame here on on Adam for blame shifting and kind of throwing Eve under the bus, because here, uh, Eve, she's not really wanting to take responsibility for uh, her actions as well. You know, it's the serpent who deceived me Uh, again. You know, the devil made me do it. uh, we believe that, that this verse, Genesis 3.15, is, is the promise to send the Messiah, the Savior who will deliver, redeem, and restore, uh, opening up entry back into the garden, the place that has been closed off after God removes Adam and Eve from the garden. And Jesus is who we believe is being spoken of in this passage in Genesis 3.15. And that he won't just be Savior, uh, Messiah, Deliverer, Redeemer, and Restorer, but he will also be our husband and bridegroom. God sends Jesus to redeem a bride. In the same way that that no suitable helper was found in the garden for Adam, there is no suitable helper on Earth who, for Jesus, without deliverance, redemption, and ultimately restoration, uh, being our new condition, our born again condition. That's why Jesus, you know, all of the, uh, the stories about, oh, Jesus, you know, he was really married and he had a child and his lineage, you know, exists today, but it's hidden from us. Uh, some of you are familiar with, with, with these stories, you know, the Holy Grail and what its real meaning is, but for Anyone who might think there's any truth to this doesn't understand or believe that Jesus was the Son of God, as well as being uh, fully human, that Jesus had to be born of a virgin, had to be born without sin in order to be a pure, pure, sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice, uh, offering up his life on our behalf. And if he was without sin, you know, Scripture talks about not being unevenly yoked. Jesus did not come to get an earthly bride. That was not uh, his mission. His mission was an eternal one, one that goes beyond this life and even this world, uh, beyond uh, what is time itself, fixed time itself. God lies outside of time, and we will be outside of time when we are with Jesus. There was no suitable helper to be found on this earth for Jesus. If he got married, if he yoked himself with someone who was sinful, a sinful woman— uh, his his children, um, and the lineage beyond that would not be any different than any other lineage that is found on this earth that is sinful and fallen. No. Jesus came to redeem a bride, to redeem us, that when we accept his proposal of marriage, And we are under this new marriage contract, a contract of uh, a covenant of grace. Um, We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. We are marked with redemption. And we have safe passage from this life. uh, The the second exodus, which was discussed in another episode, uh, Jesus is the second exodus, so that when, when we leave, when we are joined with him uh, in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth, uh, the new Garden of Eden, um, we will meet him at the altar, at the marriage of the Lamb, at the great wedding feast uh, spoken of at the end of Revelation. So from here, I'm going to talk about the correlating passages with, with Jesus. And, and once again, I mean, it, it is unmistakable. Um, this verse, uh, just like it was with all the other verses that we've looked at so far in this series. Um, unmistakable. What is said in this last verse and what is said about Jesus and what he has done on our behalf through the offering up of his life and being resurrected on the third day and ascending into heaven. So let's take a look at uh, some of these passages. I think the first thing that, that we should consider in making this correlation between Jesus and the first eve creation of the first Eve, uh, through the first Adam, and Jesus coming to redeem a bride. I think first looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 19, uh, beginning with verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Going back to Adam and Eve, uh, when they were... Deceived when Eve was first deceived and became the uh, deceiver of Adam, uh, as soon as he ate, I, I don't know whether you've ever thought about this, but um, they were not aware of their nakedness until after Adam ate from uh, the fruit of tree of knowledge of good and evil. It didn't happen just when, when Eve did this. It, it happened... When Adam did it, and really, the command not to do this was given to Adam. He was the uh, first line of defense, if you will. Uh, he was the the gatekeeper. Um, the, God's instruction to Adam to um, dress and keep the garden. Uh, That word keep, the idea of that was to preserve the order of, uh, to prevent anything from coming in. Uh, And in this case, what came in was deception. Uh, It means to hedge about. Some people, some Christians, you will hear them praying, uh, God, put a hedge of protection around, around that person. Um, that idea of to keep that that instruction was given to Adam, and it was it's really tied to worship I mean that that is the precedent for worship uh, beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden when God gives Adam this instruction to dress and keep the garden they immediately recognize their nakedness and they cover themselves up. They hide their shame. You remember in the the last episode, uh, it it said the two shall be one and they knew no shame, even though they were naked. Now they know shame. Uh, In a sense, um, they have been... uh, are now seeing things as they really are. They're they're covering that, um, being cloaked completely in God, being enveloped in God's glory and His presence. Um, suddenly, uh, that has been ripped off of them, and now they see their their nakedness. And here, Jesus, who has come to redeem a bride and is very near his own death, uh, his giving up the ghost, his uh, drinking that cup that represents salvation, uh, but it also represents the bride cup, that cup that he asked to be taken away from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, He is... Stripped bare. His clothes are removed. Uh, he is, well, as it says in Hebrews 12:2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, you know it's interesting that they when they the soldiers removed his his outer cloak and they tore it into four pieces um, in mark chapter thirteen verse twenty seven when when Jesus is explaining to his disciples he's just come out of the temple, and his his disciples want to know when um, everything's going to be brought down uh, when the destruction is going to take place. He He's spoken of it at the beginning of chapter 13, uh, saying that no stone will be left unturned. Uh, the, the physical, even the physical uh, building that represents the, the system under the old covenant, the first covenant, uh, that is meant to be a, a shadow and copy of heavenly things. Uh, he tells them, at that time, this is verse starting with verse 26, at that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. They don't know what they're doing when they tear Jesus' garment into Four sections, uh, dividing it among themselves. Uh, it's for them, you know. It's it's to meet their own need or to uh, become their own possession. Um, it's just an interesting contrast between what was just said uh, about that passage I just read about uh, the angels going to the four corners of the earth, uh, and it's hard not to, to see this, um, the fact that they have divided this garment among themselves uh, as, as sinners, as the fallen. Uh, it is, it is the, the opposite of what the angels will be doing when they go to the four corners of the earth. But it also uh, is symbolically uh, speaking, uh, representing uh, that, that Jesus and what he has come to do on our behalf um, takes in the four corners of the earth, the people living in the four corners of the earth. He is uh, becoming shame for us. Um, Whereas Adam and Eve, when they sinned and recognized their nakedness and uh, were filled with shame, um, it is that same uh, shame, that that same sin inherited by all of us uh, from the first Adam that has made Jesus naked. Uh, Jesus knew no shame. Uh, He knew no sin. He was uh, born without sin. And here he is, uh, becoming shame on our behalf, really to undo the shame that Adam and Eve brought upon themselves and that all of us have inherited. You know, Jesus on the cross being uh, stripped naked, uh, being executed, was to undo, uh, to reverse the shame that Adam and Eve brought into the world. Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans chapter 9, verse 33, As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Romans chapter 10, verse 11, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God chose the foolish na- things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And finally, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that, is why I am suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day." Jesus, in taking away our shame, he he clothes us in his righteousness. When we accept Jesus' proposal of marriage, uh, meaning that we are already married to Him, that uh, God becomes our Father, and we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, and we receive Christ's righteousness to ourselves. I mean, when God looks at us, He sees us as co-heirs with Jesus. Uh, He no longer identifies us with the first Adam. He sees the righteousness of Jesus in us, and that can't be improved upon. There's nothing else left for us to do uh, in order to be able to please God more in terms of our belonging to Him and being able to, to be with Him for all eternity. What Jesus did is enough, and he has he paid the the bride price for us. He he left a deposit uh, by sending the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to intercede on our behalf. So Jesus really does cover us and take away our shame. We are no longer naked so to speak and yet we end up in this life striving so hard to do more than that and and not for the kingdom of God it's for ourselves we we cannot rest in our new identity in Jesus We cannot fully accept that our shame has been covered by him and we continue to pursue those things that tempt us away from him and that we uh, justify to ourselves that it is the kingdom of God and it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. You know I think the the real irony is that the more we try and cover up our shame with the things of this world with with titles uh, with accomplishments with material wealth and goods. Uh, The more we surround ourselves with this, the more we call attention to the fact that we really are not secure in our identity in in Jesus, that that our shame has been taken away from us. Um, Our concern is far more for those uh, communities uh, that we are a part of, whether it has to do with with work or uh, social communities, um, churches, neighborhoods, all of that. It's interesting what uh, Philippians tells us that this potentially means uh, for God's kingdom Uh, Beginning with Philippians 3, chapter 3, verse 18. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his, his glorious body. Listen to what John says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Revelation 16, chapter 16, verse 15, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed think about that you know this this whole series is about proving that Jesus came to redeem a bride and by offering up his life uh, taking the shame i mean adam and eve and their sin uh, the ultimate result of that was that Jesus had to become their shame as well, in order to take away our shame. But here in Revelation, Jesus is talking about um, in the same way that that he is sitting with his Father in heaven, that we also uh, can be seated with him there. In fact, in Ephesians it says we're already seated there in the heavenly realm, and, and as his bride, you know, we are this image of uh, king and queen, uh, because Jesus is king. He's Lord and Savior. He's king, but he's husband and bridegroom, and as his bride, that—that that is who we are. But we receive Jesus. We accept his proposal of marriage, but we do not accept his way of life. I spoke about this in the first episode, not in the series, but the very first uh, episode, episode one, uh, when I started this podcast about the idea that we can have the right Jesus of salvation and the completely wrong Jesus for living it out. That Paul addresses that specifically in uh, 2 Corinthians eleven one through 4, Uh especially in, in verse four. Uh he, he's saying that very thing that, that we can have the right Jesus of salvation, but the wrong Jesus uh for living that out. Uh and even the wrong uh Holy Spirit. And it says and and it it's because of deception and how deception creeps in in such subtle ways over such long periods of time. And he says, we will accept this easy enough. Deception comes to us through the place it is least expected. And that's that's within our own walls, through our own leaders, those that we trust that have been given the our stamp of approval, so to speak, as well as uh, others in leadership you know, whether that's denomination or, or other Christian leaders on a national level. Uh, but that's that's what Jesus is talking about, that, that, that we can accept Jesus and have our shame covered uh, and then spend the rest of our lives pursuing those things that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God, have nothing to do with Jesus, and in effect are Uncovering our nakedness, the nakedness that Jesus has covered over for us. We can, in effect, uncover our nakedness. In fact, we not only can uncover our nakedness, uh, we do uncover our nakedness. We we spend uh much of our lifetime, uncovering our nakedness after we have accepted Jesus, accepted his proposal of marriage, uh, been given a brand new identity in him, but have never come to the place of really believing, accepting deep in, in our hearts this new identity that God accepts us, just because of our new identity in His Son, Jesus, our Bridegroom. We still are trying to measure up, to be approved uh, by whether it's our wanting the approval of our our parents, uh, men especially, are desperately uh, in need of Approval from their fathers. I mean, that's just a, a fact, a reality. Uh, very few men do not have that struggle at some point in their lives, and, and some never get through that struggle uh, by the end of their lives. Never realize that we are okay just as we are, that God has accepted us just as we are, uh because of Jesus in us and we spend so much money and time and energy um trying to improve on that not necessarily uh measuring up to God but but sometimes sometimes that that problem exists for a lifetime, but but it's also trying to get the approval of those who are most important to us in our lives, uh, again, through work, uh, church, um, whatever communities we're a part of. But that's enough about that. I think that you get the picture... That I am trying to present here, especially in terms of the the correlation between this last passage in the description of the creation of Eve through Adam and Jesus coming to redeem a bride, this contrast between Adam and Eve uh, being naked but feeling no shame, Jesus coming to be, to take on our shame, to take on this original shame that uh, came upon Adam and Eve when they sinned and realized that they were naked. So I'm not sure anything else needs to be said about that, and I do want to conclude this series. uh, But before I do, I want to kind of circle back around to some things that were first discussed in the uh, the first passage we looked at in Genesis uh, chapter two twenty one so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh and uh, in making those correlations um, realizing that there's two different Hebrew words for sleep that are used here and and the second one is is talking about a figurative death, uh, a a trance-like sleep if you will, and that Jesus has to die before we can live, before we can be reborn uh, before we can be a Suitable helper to him, a bride, and but there's another uh, correlation that that has to do with with Peter when he is has been arrested. It's in Acts chapter twelve, verse one. Peter's been arrested; he's thrown in prison, and he is in a deathlike sleep, a trance-like. Sleep. And I want to to review, uh, I I know I touched on this back in this first episode, but I want to look at this uh, correlation completely and why much of it is also happening with Peter. What God is telling us uh, through this experience with Peter. Uh, after he's been arrested, and and why there are some direct correlations not just with the creation of Eve through Adam, but also mirroring what Jesus went through as well. So in, in order to begin this, I think it would be good to just read this account in Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse 1 what actually happens to Peter uh, when he's arrested. Uh, Beginning with verse 1, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. First of all, before going much further, I think it would be good to ask ourselves why why Peter? Why is this happening to Peter? This, this kind of, it's a, it's a pretty amazing uh, event that takes place here. Peter being arrested, being, being bound, uh, being between uh, two guards, being in this deep sleep, and then this angel comes along and pokes him in the side, and he wakes up, and he's, his shackles fall off. And he's able to get up and be led out by the angel, past the guards, uh, and out of uh, that that prison setting and back into the city. Why Peter? Well, there's really no one better than Peter. I mean, Peter is the standout disciple. Uh, he is part of. Everything that that seems to to stand out with Jesus, both good and bad, uh, during the period of Jesus's uh, ministry. I mean, it, it's it's Peter that recognizes Jesus in Matthew 16 uh, when Jesus says, "But but what about you?" Say, talking to his disciples, uh, "Who do you say I am?" And Simon Peter. Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then in verse 19 he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In the verse right before that he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But then Peter is the one that uh, ends up denying Jesus three times uh, when G- after Jesus is arrested and before they uh, crucify him. Peter is also the one that um, walks out on the water, coming to Jesus and then his, his uh, faith gives way and he begins to sink he's also the one with Ananias and Sapphira who go and sell some property and come back and give the money and, and claim that they are giving all the money that they receive from this land but they kept some back and if you're familiar with the story, they because they lied about this because they withheld from God. Uh, Peter is the one that they have done this with, and they both die. They both give up their ghosts and die. Then in chapter ten in Acts, beginning with verse nine, and, and this is this is really one one of the most uh, profound. Uh, recorded events. Um, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. Uh, remember Jesus and when they took his his garment his cloak and they divided that cloak into four sections and i read the passage about jesus sending the angels to the four corners of the earth uh, to gather uh, the elect here we have this this sheep being let down by its four corners which is is really significant when we find out what the meaning of this this vision or our dream is um, about having specifically to do with all believers. That now there will no one will be considered unclean by God. Uh, in Ephesians, it tells us that that God no longer regards regards there uh, as being two separate flesh, Jew and Gentile, but but only one. So um, it this this. Sheet, uh, being let down to earth by its four corners, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told Peter, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Now, Cornelius, who was a Gentile, had been praying three days before at three in the afternoon, which is also the time of the Uh, third prayer hour of the day that the Jews observed had had a vision. Uh, He saw a man in shining clothes who told him to send for Peter. He described Peter and uh, told him to send for Peter and he sends his his messenger to Peter. Uh, They arrive and in verse 28 in chapter 10 After they inquire about him, uh, Peter says, You were well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? He's saying this to Cornelius, who says... Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Even though uh, Peter is the one to uh, receive this message from God, that everything uh, is now clean that there's no longer anyone that is considered to be unclean. There's not two separate flesh anymore. Uh, which is interesting because um, Peter, in his mission, in his ministry, still uh, is devoted to, to bringing the good news of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, uh, the good news that there is not only a savior, but also husband and bridegroom to uh, the Jews, the circumcised. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, uh, Paul talks about, on the contrary, they recognized that I, meaning himself, Paul, had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been To the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Sophus, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me, Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. According to some traditions, because of Jesus saying about Peter, "I will build my church on this rock," um, and He says that He will give him the keys to heaven, uh, there is this belief that uh, the authority has been given uh, to Peter, and that authority uh, beyond Peter has has. Been extended on that there is a uh, the succession of authority coming from Peter uh, continues on even until this day. But what is the um, is is that is that true? Uh, does is Peter different than all the other disciples who became apostles? Uh, because it in Ephesians two when paul is is talking to this young fledgling church of Gentile converts uh, in Ephesus, and he's explaining to them what what i've said in the last uh, episode um, Ephesus being christianity one o one to Gentile converts, and he's explaining to them that that there's no longer this separation uh, with God in in flesh, Jew and Gentile, but it's it's just one, one flesh. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, when it comes to salvation. Uh, it it has become this level playing field. And what he says in uh, verse 9, beginning with verse 19 and going on through verse 20, consequently talking to these uh, Gentile believers in Ephesus consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God and also members of his household built on the foundation the foundation of the apostles and prophets With Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. He doesn't say built on the foundation of Peter, Peter alone. And here in that last passage that we read, that Peter went on in his mission to the circumcised and Paul to the uncircumcised. Today, And throughout most of the the history of the Christian church and faith, it has been predominantly a uh, Gentile church. So, which is more of what uh, evidence of Paul's ministry, uh, the fruit of his ministry and, and what was established over Peter's. So if we want to talk about a, a succession of authority being passed down, it, it really, I mean, if you reason it out, it, it really should be based on Paul, uh, not not Peter. Uh, but that's because um, Peter and the other apostles and the, and the prophets uh, are all the foundation of of what we call the church today our christian faith with jesus being the chief cornerstone uh, nonetheless peter is a a significant stand out uh, figure uh, up until paul comes on the scene but here i mean it makes sense that peter is the one uh, that god uses in this situation Uh, where Herod has arrested him and thrown him into prison and what that is communicating to us and how I think critically important it is to know and understand this in in terms of this this case that's being made uh, for the church's last eve uh, and, and providing proof that Jesus came to redeem a bride. The first thing to take note of is in Acts chapter 12, verse 3. It was during the time of the festival of unleavened bread, which occurs at the time of Passover, lasting seven days. This festival not only symbolized the Jews' haste when they fled from the Egyptians when they were being held in bondage in the land of Egypt and they didn't have time for their bread to rise, so they only had unleavened bread to eat after they escaped. But it was also a, a spring celebration when the first fruits of the barley, which was the first grain to ripen and to be harvested uh, in the land of Israel, were brought to the temple as an offering. And that... that. uh just kind of that fact nails it on the head, first fruits of the barley uh that's what Peter represents here, the first fruits uh for what Jesus came and did on our behalf, and that we symbolically uh, undergo what Peter is seeing. Uh, what is recorded about him as undergoing that uh, in accepting Jesus' proposal of marriage uh, we are crucified with him. And this event with Peter is presenting to us the evidence again beyond, beyond Jesus doing this uh, being raised from the dead and ascending into heaven uh of course the Holy Spirit coming uh, as promised. I mean that was a significant sign, but but here with Peter and what actually is literally taking place here uh, is is presenting to us the the evidence, the flesh and blood in it, flesh and blood, sinful human being. Uh, what what God has done for us and what it our lives uh, pa- after that acceptance of Jesus um, we can imagine this as being what what takes place for us because jesus had has gone before us and I'll explain if you'll remember. Uh, In the first episode when I'm talking about uh, Adam being put into a a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, uh, that's when God removes uh, the rib. And that was extensively discussed, uh, especially for the correlation with Jesus and him having to die. And it was after he died that his side was pierced. Here's Peter who is imprisoned. He is shackled, placed in a cell with two guards on either side of him. He's sleeping between them, and there are also guards outside the cell. And he is in a deep sleep. And this word uh, used here for, for the kind of sleep that he was in uh, symbolically, is a a death-like sleep, uh, a trance. It, it was a very deep sleep that he was in. Uh, maybe it was REM sleep. I don't know, but but it seems like it was it was much deeper than that, and uh, is is uh, much more significant uh, in terms of looking at the first Adam and the creation of Eve uh, through him, and then Jesus coming to redeem a bride. So, just as, like I said, Adam is asleep and God removes a rib, uh, Jesus is, is dead, literally dead, not symbolically dead, when his side is pierced. Uh, and here is Peter asleep, shackled, and an angel came in and struck him on the side. Quick, get up, the angel said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. That is exactly what... Jesus does for each one of us. We're, we're getting a picture here, a, a visual here of what Jesus does for each of us. After Jesus uh, dies, gives up the ghost, is, is pierced in the side, and if you uh, listen to the first episode, then you know that uh, the word for uh, rib with with Adam, the original Hebrew word for rib, Uh, is often translated in the Old Testament as the word side, especially uh, talking about the side of the tabernacle, the side of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, And with Jesus, where it says he was pierced in the side, um, that word literally means rib. I don't know why it's uh, translated as the word side, but it means rib, and it's only used... Uh, five times in the new testament and all of them are with Jesus both for when he was actually pierced in the side but when he also uh, after he had been raised from the dead and he went to visit his visit the disciples and um it talks about his side and doubting thomas wanting to be put his finger in the hold in his in his hands and his side Uh, The only other time this word is used in the New Testament, uh, the Greek word translated as the word side, is here with Peter in this deep death-like sleep when the angel comes in and pokes him in the side and then wakes him up. uh, Jesus, when he's crucified and he descends into hell for three days he defeats death and uh is is resurrected on the third day um peter that's exactly what's going on here if i'm not going to go into to all the the words uh but the idea of of the the soldiers that were placed on watch i mean it's it's not a uh a word the greek word that that's like someone who is of God being on their watch. This is out like Satan's folks. This is like uh, hell, uh, symbolizing hell where Peter is. And and these are uh, Satan's minions standing guard over him. And the angel comes in and pokes him in the side, tells him to get up. And the, the shackles, you know, which is... In our condition, apart from Jesus, we are sentenced to death, eternal death uh, that those chains, the hole that death has on us is broken through Jesus and we see this with Peter that the these chains that that he is shackled with they they fall off but You know, the guards, none of them know what's going on. They all remain asleep or or in a trance. And when Jesus is on the cross and and what we talked about earlier about his his clothes, uh, his cloak being divided up into four sections, um, and he is naked, and he becomes shame on our behalf, so that he can take our shame away, and we are clothed in his righteousness. Uh, we become a temple unto the Lord. Uh, the Holy Spirit dwells within us that's That's what we see here. Uh, he puts on his clothes and his sandals uh, and wraps his cloak around him think about about Paul in his letter to the Ephesians when he is explaining the holy spirit in military terms you know putting on uh, the the helmet of salvation the breastplate of righteousness uh, shotting our feet feet with the gospel of peace that's what we have a picture of here with peter uh getting dressed i mean it it is presenting to us what happens at the moment of accepting Jesus' proposal of marriage, we are delivered from death. And the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, and we are fully armored. We are fully clothed. We are fully clothed in righteousness. And so after he does this, uh, the angel leads him out of prison Uh, But Peter had no idea uh, what the angel was doing uh, or that it was really even happening. I mean, he thinks it's a vision. I mean, can you imagine uh, if we could see literally into the unseen realm of what happens to each of us when we accept Jesus? We're given a picture of it right here and now with Peter. This is what it looks like. And it said that as Peter follows the angel, they pass the first guard, and then they pass the second guard, and then they come to the iron gate leading to the city. They come to the gates of hell. That's what's going on here. Jesus is in the grave for three days before he defeats death and emerges from hell. That's what's going on here. Uh, you remember back in episode two talking about about Mary and the the uh, the wedding celebration in Cana uh, that it was the third day of the wedding celebration. And, of course, that episode was talking about Mary, the fact that Jesus calls her woman, uh, and that she really symbolizes the church that Jesus has come to redeem, uh, you know, in the same way that that the first Adam uh, calls Eve. Uh, He calls her woman. But it's the third day of the 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 this wedding celebration and and that was at the very beginning of jesus's ministry and how long does his ministry last It lasts uh for three years and then the day that that Jesus is crucified uh and is on the cross when he gives up his ghost it's at three o'clock in the afternoon uh which scripture says is the the about the ninth hour. Uh, but it's also the third uh, prayer hour of the day uh, in the Jewish tradition of, of prayer hours where they would either stop where they were praying or gather together for prayer. Remember when when Peter goes up on the rooftop to pray at noon? Uh, that's the time of the second prayer hour of the day. The first one occurs at 9 o'clock in the morning. And um, that's significant. The day that Jesus is crucified, everything corresponds with one of the prayer hours of the day. Jesus is crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's the time of the first prayer hour. Uh, At at 12 o'clock is when everything uh, becomes dark. Uh, That that is at 12 o'clock, the second prayer hour. And when Jesus gives up his ghost, it is at 3 o'clock in the afternoon during the third prayer hour. This uh, brings to mind Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Finally, after Peter seems to be fully aware of all that uh, has taken place, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. John Mark, uh, where many people were gathered and they were praying. They were praying for him. Uh, There's uh, some dispute for exactly which John this is, uh, whether it is John, uh, the apostle Jesus loved, or the disciple Jesus loved, who wrote the gospel of John, or whether it was Mark, who wrote uh, the gospel of Mark. Um, I'm not sure it, it really matters but I think it's at least from my perspective it's really interesting that um, there is a Mary who is a mother of uh, a man named John. Uh, and whether it is Mary the mother of Jesus or it's uh, John the Apostle that Jesus loved or or John Mark who wrote the Gospel of John. I, I don't know that that really matters. I think what, what it kind of symbolizes here uh mary this Mary is also a widow, and um apparently this is is her house, and her son uh is there when peter arrives and if you'll remember um the episode where we talked about and it's it's episode two uh talking about uh, the second time that that jesus Calls his mother woman. Remember, he never refers to Mary as his mother. He never addresses her in that way, and he only addresses her as woman two times, and and both times are in uh, John's account, uh, the first one at, at the wedding feast at the beginning of his ministry, and the second time he does this is when Jesus is just about at the point of death, and he makes provision for her uh, with uh, with John, the disciple uh, that he loved, uh, he he says, "Woman, behold your son, and son, behold uh, your mother." and And from that time on, she lives with him in his house. And we we talked about uh, who who Mary, as widow, symbolizes there um, that Jesus is about to go um, offer up his life. In order to take away our conditions for being spiritually widowed and fatherless, and who better to um, for that to be symbolized through than him making provision for mary uh, and he also you know had said before then that he was going to prepare a place for us uh, in his father's house, and here he is um, Mary, his mother, who is a widow who symbolizes us as well as the church. And as a widow, what what Jesus is about to do for us uh, on a spiritual plane. Uh, and, and part of that is he's gone to prepare a place just like he, he makes provision for his widowed mother with John. So that's who is there and reminds us you know of that, uh, but also what what He has done for us. Um I don't know, but you know uh, if you're listening to this, um you may not be able to accept this or or see these correlations uh with Peter and their significance uh to be able to see what what this illustration of what Jesus has literally done for us. It looks like this. Uh, it's it 's kind of hard for us to comprehend him being both God and man and descending into hell we we can 't imagine that, but we can imagine this we this this picture with Peter is completely understandable to us uh as a visual for communicating uh, not only uh what literally is happening for us when we accept jesus uh but but also uh, Peter because he is this standout disciple uh, who became a standout apostle that that he is the perfect person the the perfect representation of first fruits uh that again uh confirms affirms to us in yet another profound way that that Jesus is who he said he was, uh, and he remains that today and forevermore, for all eternity. Uh, Jesus is that. But Jesus uh, specifically came to redeem a bride, and when we don't understand that, especially as men, we, we, we don't... Um, relate to Jesus in that way, then what that ends up doing and the harm that it does, not not just in our congregations, uh, but in in our marriages and in the ways that, that we treat one half of the body, uh, you know, the church being both male and female and, and, and the vulnerability of the church, both male and female, is that of Eve for being deceived by the, by the serpent and our minds being led astray from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And and when deception comes, um, Paul says in, in verse 4 in Second uh, Corinthians 11, uh, eleven four we accept it easily enough. Amen. Well, um, I know this has been a, a long series, and I hope that I have not used too many extra words and, and stretched it out longer than it has needed to be. Uh, but But I hope that if... This is the first episode you're listening to that you will go back and listen to uh, not only the, the other parts of this series, um, which are five altogether, but also listen to episode one, which is really an introduction into this, this podcast, uh, why it's called Pleading the Case, and, and why I have felt um, compelled at this time in my life, in my walk with the Lord um, to undertake this podcast. Why I, I think right now uh, where the church is, uh, the condition that she's actually in, uh, and that she does not understand that, that she is in, that we are in as a bride, um, that it needs to be not just talked about, not just Bible prophecy thrown out there. Um, All of this that's being talked about pretty much has nothing to do with end-time theology or prophecy. This is just looking at Scripture itself, looking at at Jesus' own ministry, uh, leading up to uh, His offering up His life for us, uh, coming to understand uh, how he sees us as a bride, uh, and, and, and being able to determine uh, when when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 to that that we have been betrothed to one husband, to Christ, and he desires that we be uh, remain pure as a virgin. How do we know if we are that? What do we base that on? How do we measure that? How do we assess our own condition? Obviously, uh, if, if Paul calls into question that, that we can be other than a pure and undefiled bride, how do we know this? How do we determine this? Why would he say this if it, if it couldn't be true, one, and two, if it couldn't be proven scripturally? It has to be in Scripture, but it's not going to just be in one or two verses or this book or that book. It It is going to take us looking at the entirety of Scripture from creation of Adam and Eve and uh, their sin, uh, what we now call the fall, God's promise to send uh, a Savior, Messiah, Uh, who is also bridegroom and husband and trace that all the way through to not only uh, Jesus being born, uh, what's recorded about his life, his ministry, uh, him going to the cross, dying, uh, descending into hell, defeating death, being resurrected on the third day and ascending into heaven but then all the way through to the end of revelation and the wedding feast it is so consistent and what what I call now call widow bride marriage theology which is the same thing that's what Jesus does for us uh, when god promised us in jesus uh, he he promised to send someone to deliver redeem and ultimately restore us and our condition of spiritual widowhood because of the fall because of of Adam and Eve's sin, and being taken out of the garden, we have to be delivered from that condition and Jesus presents us with that offer opportunity He extends to us uh, as a proposal of marriage um, the a marriage contract the 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 new second covenant of grace, and when we accept it, uh, we are redeemed uh, by him, and we are instantly betrothed and considered to be already married to him, and it also means that we instantly are adopted into our Heavenly Father's family, Uh, and we are waiting for the end of this age when we will be joined with him at the altar at the marriage of the lamb and the celebration uh the wedding feast um and that's you know the last part of that restoration uh, which is marriage widow bride marriage theology which is the same thing as saying deliverance, redemption, and restoration theology, because that's what happens to us. That's our condition, and that's what we become and who we will be with for all eternity in the New Jerusalem when there's a new heaven and earth. On the next episode, I will be taking a very intense look at James one twenty-seven. Uh, This passage uh, really is a litmus test, if not the litmus test, for determining our actual condition as the church, as Christ's bride. And I know that may seem really, really far-fetched, that one single passage of Scripture could reveal that to us, but... Uh, I've been studying it for 25 years and I'm convinced without a doubt that it does. Stay tuned. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonza, posing the question, Is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, Have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? And I sincerely welcome your comments. Feel free to leave them on our website or if you want to send me an email directly, you can send it to andy at widows.org. Until next time.